0: Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop by 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm welcoming back Nick Shackleton-Jones, who is one of the preeminent voices in L&D, and certainly an inspiration to the work I do. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us, and thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Nick, welcome back to the learning and development podcast. (laughs) Good to see you again. Um, So Nick, I was recently taken by your illustration of your learning design maturity model. It really resonated with me as I think L&D is still largely stuck in an education mindset and within its structures that prevent us from doing enough stuff that demonstrably works in ways that are meaningful to our organizations. Uh, So nice easy way to kick off the conversation then.
1: Um, Could you talk us through this model, please? Yeah, sure, but I'd, I'll try and do it in a way which isn't kind of boring. So maybe I'll kind of stop at the different points. So it's, it's kind of got three levels. The first mm-hmm. is education, uh, where the focus is on content. The second is kind of performance consulting, really, where the focus is on task. Uh, and the third is kind of human centered design, where the focus is on people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first level, education, blimey, where to start? I guess you know, up until the beginning of the twentieth century, people learned, you know, normally. Yeah, you know, what I mean is that for kind of hundreds of thousands of years, they learned, you know, like other animals do with a couple of differences. They learned by doing things, uh, sometimes with other kind of creatures, family or or kind of parts of the tribe. They learned by watching things and they learned, unlike many other creatures, by kind of hearing stories, mm. um, you know, about things that other people had seen or done. You know, that, that was it. That was learning. And then around the time of the Industrial Re- Revolution, um, something awful happened. We developed factories, and the problem that was uh, occurred was that prior to that, you know, kids did stuff with their family or with with other people who weren't necessarily in the family. And then they had these factories, and you put the adults in the factories, but the kids were getting injured in the machinery, you know, because you can't really have kids playing around. So they decided, well, you know, what, what are we going to do with all these kids? So they put them in a box. Mm. That was the answer. They put them in a box, and you couldn't just leave them alone in the box. So you had to have an adult supervising them, one adult. I and mean, what would that adult do? Well, we didn't really know. So we we adopted the religious convention, which was the adult would, you know, read a book and they would sort of recite extracts from the book back. And that was the basis of education. Education was an answer to the problem: how do we stop small children getting trapped in machinery? It wasn't an answer to the problem. you know what's the best environment for learning. In fact, as you can probably appreciate, it's a terrible environment for learning. Yeah. It has next nothing to do with learning. So. You know, that, that what's bizarre is that we began to think of that. We put this massive block in people's lives, like a 10-year, you know, hiatus in their learning. Um, but we began to think of that and talk about that as if that was learning. And organisations began to have, like, mini-education departments who would do something similar. they put people mm-hmm. in, a, in a room and sort of read something to them or show them some text on a screen. Or, and then technology came along and they started sort of taking, you know, chunks of the textbook you know, putting it out and then people would kind of recite it, and maybe do a quiz at the end. Problem is it doesn't really have any impact on performance. Mm-hmm. Um, is it's is it like rain dancing. It's like, you know, every organisation's got a little team of, of rain dancers that they kind of pay for when they do the mm-hmm. rain dances. And, you know, um, and why is that a problem? Well, it's obviously a waste of money, mm-hmm. but it, it starts to get a problem because some of those people actually genuinely care about learning and development, and a couple of things happen to them you know, some of them will start to realise that clients just want to see the dance. Mm-hmm. They just want a couple of days in a the classroom. They don't really care if it rains or not. And that can be unsettling. And others of them start to really doubt what they're doing. They've been to conferences year after year on different rain dancing techniques, but they've got this nagging thought that that wasn't really what they were there to do. Um, and so that's education. But But that, I guess, takes you to the next step. So the next step up is kind of performance consulting where you know people say well why don't we actually just help people with their jobs you know that's the, the thrust of it why don't we figure out what people are trying to do and help them mm-hmm. and create stuff which will help them we we change the context you know we don't push content to people we actually think could we build resources could we change systems could we make it easier for you to do what you do uh, the challenge with that though is it's essentially learning elimination Um, what you're doing is you're reducing the need for somebody to develop develop capability. You're creating changes to the environment. That's why if you read some of the classic performance consulting texts like Ethel Gwende or Nigel Harrison, there isn't anything in there about instructional design Mm. because instructional design belongs to the education bucket. You know, it's, it's ways to improve, you know, people's test passing ability it's kind of mumbo-jumbo it doesn't do you any good whereas in performance consulting you focus on the task and you can be a good performance consultant without knowing anything about learning at all because you're eliminating learning. so that's a big step up all of a sudden you're helping people to do the job you're removing the need for them to learn because they've got useful resources or you've changed the system so it's easier And, and, and that's great but that takes you to the kind of final step which is well okay that's really good but two problems with uh, performance consulting. One is it only works if people care. Mm-hmm. That's the odd thing. People will only use guidance and checklists and so on if they actually care. And there are some things where you actually want to transform people, where you do want to develop capability. You know, you wouldn't become a pilot without actually practicing, you know, without going through a simulator. You, you, you certainly use checklists as a pilot, but you also need to actually develop that capability. Um, and for that, you need to take the next step, which is human-centred design, you know, be build experiences which transform people, as well mm. as stuff which helps them. So yeah, that, that's kind of whistle-stop tour, I guess, of, of those kind of three steps.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going uh, to, I can't let you get away with something here, Nick, because uh, I think that uh, uh, there are most most listeners, if not everyone, will understand the education element but um, yeah. almost just as many, uh, perhaps if not all will understand the performance con- consulting part. But where you just said human-centered design and experiences, I think that um, uh, those are words that we understand, but, yeah. uh, but perhaps we don't understand uh, what that looks like, both from our perspective as the the learning and development teams and also how that's experienced by those that we're seeking to influence
1: or transform. Yeah, I think... Um, one of the odd things that I experienced, I don't know if you've experienced this, but some of the mm. listeners were, if you speak reg, fairly regularly at, at kind of conferences, you tend to sort of say something similar every time, mm-hmm. you know, sort of dark secret. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing is that people come up to you afterwards. And what I began to realize is everybody remembers something different. So some people yeah. will say, oh, I, I like that point. Or, or that thing that you said really resonated with me. Or, you know, that really sort of struck home. And sometimes, you know, they remember things you don't think you said. But what I, I kind of began to realize is that what people care about governs effectively what they store. And this is, is kind of, if you like, the basis of the effective context model, which is we don't actually remember anything that, that we experience, we remember our reactions to what we mm. experience if you have no reaction to something you call it boring you don't remember anything but if if you can get a reaction from somebody if for example i suddenly you know i, I don't know uh, well i'm not going to do it i promise but if i took <laughs> my shirt off and danced around like a maniac everybody would remember that because people yeah. have a reaction to it right so where's this going well i began to realize that audience centricity is critical and it's what you don't have in education. Nobody says in education, who are you? You know, what do you what do you care about? Let's construct a curriculum around the things that matter to you. They just say, sit down, shut up. Here's the content. Mm. But if you actually want to do learning, you've got to take the time to understand what matters to your audience because that's going to determine what they remember. And that's going to be your key lever if you actually want capability development and behavior change. Mm. So you do audience analysis because without that, you cannot build experiences that kind of transform people I'll, I'll give a sort of example because you know i know this might sound a little bit abstract um i've seen lots of safety training lots of organizations mm. do safety training a lot of it kind of falls flat because it's sort of dry and unrelated and and people feel that they know what they're doing already mm. but i saw some really good safety training in bp which i hadn't designed where um at the end of the the training course everybody signed a photograph of their family uh, and kept it on the desk and, it, and they signed it and they said, this is why I stay safe at work. Mm. And whoever designed this had realised that, well, the people coming to this programme may not care as deeply as you might like about safety. But if we can find something that they do really care about, like their family, and we can shift the focus and the emphasis towards what impact do you think it's going to have really getting people to kind of think through that, you can draw a connection. And you can change their behavior and you can transform the way that they behave. Mm. So the the thrust of person-centered design is it's a systematic data-driven way of finding out what tasks people are doing, what they care about, and then building the performance support that's going to help them with the task Mm. and addressing the things that they care about in a way which is going to transform them. So that's why those two things go hand in hand. Mm. In in real life, a lot of our learning is driven by the challenges that we face day to day. These are things we care about, right? Hitting Mm. a deadline. Um, And in a training context, we have to create simulations, artificial challenges, which drive that kind of similar process.
0: Yeah, you're right. The the organic experiences that we experience, like uh, um, drying up, during that presentation, or yeah. watching somebody getting crucified in a meeting, yeah. you know, and all of those things that you that you remember, you I, I think you uh, you describe it in your book, and uh, and uh, I think on the the initial podcast conversation about the the train journey in that uh, that you don't you just don't remember it until. One day there's a fight on the uh, yeah. on the train, uh, and that's and that's what you remember. It's the you know it's a, a significant emotional event, uh, and you, of course you, you talk about the the important role of emotion in uh, in learning in uh, in your book. Um, but uh, but so so what we're talking about here is taking that that we that we've observed and we've understood and analyzing ourselves about what has been critical in our careers. You know, um, you you and I have risen through the ranks in uh, respective organizations. We didn't do that by attending training courses. We did that by um, being acutely aware of the expected and rewarded behaviors at each level, demonstrating those yeah. and convincing enough people who have the influence that, that we were worth taking a punt on. Um, and of course, you know, when, when again, it, uh, in our respective uh, in-house learning and development roles, when we were accountable for that, uh actual change when people came to us and said "Look, i need to prepare this person or this team or this country for, for something significant both you and i know that we weren't developing e-learning or training courses in order to actually make that difference it was it was something designed to uh to to gain the desired outcome um but uh, but nick um Good look. Going back to the uh, the learning maturity model. Um, uh, of course, we will come back to human centered design in a bit. Uh, performance consulting and performance impact do seem to be growing in uh, prominence. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to be working with Guy Wallace recently on uh, on a series of uh, of conversations with people who had made that pivot themselves. Uh, but that said, so much of N and D seems to be stuck in education, and this could well be down to what the organisation expects, amongst other things. Uh, why do you think this is
1: yeah it's really tough this is what people sometimes call order taking Mm. Um, and i think a big there's sort of two obvious answers to that question a big part of it is because we've ended up conflating these two words education and learning we actually Mm. think education has something to do with learning whereas generally actually it's it's a really good way to stop people learning um and um and they're, they're very different use different techniques the problem is though many of our clients will have been through education I mean almost all of them and so when they come to us it the expectation is well that's what you do you know you put people in a classroom right and, and you you here's the content I want you to put it in these people's heads and you know that's really difficult to come come away from because mm-hmm. we exist kind of in service to the organization and often if somebody's commissioning something and they're telling us look, we just want you to take this content put it in an in learning module or whatever, it's not enough to start a conversation like we're having here about the, mm. you know, the philosophy of learning, or whatever. You you you, you either have to build their trust mm. and say, look, look, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. You're just going to have to trust me. Or what what I find destination postcards works better. Actually, mm. showing somebody something that's different and saying, look, uh, how about if we did this instead? Or the other thing that the 5DI model, which is a kind of human centered design approach, uh, does is you start with. A definition so you say take a step back can we define what are the business outcomes mm. that you're looking for because generally there's a hidden assumption that the course is going to deliver those and generally that's, right. that's wrong right so you take a step back and you say look no this is familiar territory for for you and i think maybe for some people listening let's just talk about what you're trying to achieve yeah and then the next step is we're going to go and talk to some of the the actors, the, the customers, the people who will actually be achieving this to find out what we can do to help them. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of common sense approach. Yeah. The, the only challenge there is sometimes people say, well, we haven't got time for that, you know, just, just build a course. So it, that's a set of problems. The other big problem that you've got, uh, I'll tell a story which, you know, I learned something from. I did a design for a uh, change management leadership program. Uh, and we, we went through all the right process. We ended up with a project based program, uh, lots of performance support, some really kind of challenging experiences. Uh, and it lasted over the course of a kind of a few weeks, of you know, course, and then some, some challenges, and then uh, a, a kind of wrap up in the end. We presented this back to the stakeholder. Uh, And I still remember how it felt to be standing in that room as he sort of crossed his arms, leaned back and said, yeah, I think people are pretty busy. He said, I Mm. think they just want a couple of days off the job. (laughs) And I realized they were there for the rain dance.
0: Yeah, that's
1: right. If it rained, Mm. you know, they, they, they become cynical. And some of our stakeholders are cynical. I've even, I've heard this in very big organizations. They say, you're never going to show a link with, with Mm -hmm. impact. And then you always feel why are you spending money on this thing? Yeah well, it's because they're happy that we just run some this is what employees expect, right? You know you run the old course, sit around tea and biscuits, some slides on a screen. I just think, well, that's awful if that's mm. what we've been reduced to. so so that's another kind of challenge, I think in there.
0: yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Uh, what what i um I generally say to people because, uh, in talking about uh, learning and development that actually affects performance in the way that, that you've done there uh, for those who are yet to take uh, put a foot on that path the, yeah. the general um, reluctance is that they think that people just want training but I always I say in my experience about two in ten people say no 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 I, David, I, we could go there but could we just do the training or could we just do the MBTI eight yeah. out of ten, really will engage in a conversation about outcomes you know about what what it is that you want to see as a result of this and then because you've now got into a contract of you know you could say like we could do your course but how about we just do this thing over here as well which i think will get us towards met that difference um perhaps more efficiently and more effectively most people say oh I like this you know I've you know I've never yeah. had this before but um but you feel like you're really listening to me so but but it's that reluctance or, or that belief that most people in helping to solutioneer with you just want their training I think is uh stops uh, many people in learning and development from uh, uh from progressing their thinking and their actions
1: yeah I, I agree I think that. It's also worth saying that there is something legitimate about activities which boost engagement or mm. a sense of belonging. You know, lots of people who go on training courses will reflect that the best part of it was the networking. But here's that's the right. rub: it's like if you're doing it for that reason, networking, then why are you spending so much time with people sat down, you know, not saying anything, mm. listening to somebody talk? That's not not the best use of time for networking. So it's like that, that's a legitimate outcome.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but let's then design that in-person kind of experience kind of accordingly Mm. uh, to kind of deliver that. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's where we're headed. A clearer separation between when we actually do kind of in-person experiences and and Mm. what value we get from those. And when we actually build performance support, because I think one key learning from the pandemic was don't get people together you're just gonna show them a PowerPoint slideshow. If you're a CFO for an organization and post-pandemic you've learned that you can do all of this over Zoom, right? Somebody says, here's a little business case Mm. for 50 people to get together in a hotel and a few flights and whatever. Wouldn't you be scratching your head and saying, can't can't we just just do all this over Zoom? Mm. So you, you better be doing something different
0: if you're getting people together. If you want to know how to make collaborative learning work in your organisation and demonstrate real results, then check out my new Masterclass video series. There, you'll understand how to achieve sustained engagement in your learning tech in a way that leads to improved performance. We'll also explore many of the objections L&D face when introducing something new, based on decades of experience I have of making L&D really work inside organisations. You'll find my Masterclass series on the 360 Learning blog, and you'll also find a link in the show notes. Let's get back to the show. Uh, well, Nick, let's um, let's go a little bit contentious, and uh, I want to speak to the author of the book, uh, How People Learn, about this, this idea that uh, that that, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you'd go so far as to advocate the eradication of the word learning from the lexicon of L and D. Um, what damage? is it doing this this word in in our titles and in our focus and a lot of the time in our measurement of whether we are successful in our organizations
1: yeah that's a really good question um a couple of answers to that so (laughs) i think um the, the the chaps at good practice um i think i'm right in saying they did a little bit of research and they found that when the word learning was included in the communications around something people are 25% less likely to click on the link and engage with it mm. and, and my suggestion as to why that is is because employees have come to realize that learning really means education mm. and that education is something that the hr team are going to force you to do which will distract you from the job not help you uh, uh, and frankly just you know be, be compliance typically mm. and so we, obviously, we love learning. We work in learning. We have a much broader perspective on learning. Mm-hmm. But it's all about the customer. It's all about how they interpret the word. And the reality is they've started to think that learning means education, and education is generally a pretty horrible experience where you are subjected to something and you, and, and you have to be kind of compliant. That, that's how it's been for them. So it, it kind of kills things. Mm. But it's really interesting. I'll give you another example. When I was at BP, um, we interviewed our new starters on their opinions about e-learning. Mm. Um, and, and I think our hypothesis was that this was a generation who'd be much more open to kind of learning digitally because all digital natives are blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I actually said the opposite. They said, no, 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 no. We, we, we don't want e-learning at all. We want face to face. Yeah. And, and, and we said, well, why? And it was actually Barbara Thompson, who you know, who did this, and yeah. and uh, and the answer was because we know it reflects an investment in us from the organisation. It's it's a way that the organisation shows that it values us, mm. and 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 they said they didn't like e-learning. And Jane Hart, you know, consistently sees this, but we said, "Well, that you know, you're using Google and YouTube all the time," and they said, "Yeah, mm. but that's that's not e-learning." Yeah, and, and this is the, the thrust of it. Now, when we actually put this into practice, when we launched uh, the leadership toolkit um th- that's a separate story i'll tell another time but basically i was trying to explain to my peers that i didn't want to do a bunch of learning modules for new leaders yeah. and what i used to do is i used to go into meetings one of those little tins you know survival tins yeah you slap up the middle of the table and I say that's what we're trying to do for leaders we're trying to create all the useful stuff that they'll need as soon as they become leaders and they, they kind of got that but when we launched it um i said look take out any reference to learning whatsoever I don't want to see the word learning anyway, because as soon as people sniff the word learning, they'll think, oh, it's some sort of HR initiative where we have to do all this horrible stuff. Mm. And instead, we just, the, the strap line was useful stuff on your device. And that, that was fundamentally, that was the, the selling point, the proposition. Mm. And when we surveyed people about it later, because a lot of people used it, it was very popular. I think they had something like 19,000 leaders or something accessing it. They said that they didn't see it as learning. the reason they didn't see it as learning is because they didn't see it as education and we've ended up lumbered with that association so yeah um i'd love to rescue the word learning um you you see me daily on social media trying to probe (laughs) our learning away from the associations with education but i'm probably going to fail so Mm -hmm. your best bet might just be to say look we as a team are here to help you perform yeah. and to give you a better experience in this organisation. Our focus is on performance and experience. And that, that's very much what I did at Deloitte. That was our mission, to mm. measurably improve performance and experience. And learning did not feature in the mission. No, no, it's
0: – yeah, it's I, – I love that. When, when we're focusing on the, the desires and the uh, of, of the people that that we're seeking to influence, of course, there, there we go, tie, like tying myself in knots, trying not to use the word learner or or, or something as, uh, <laughs> uh, as silly – um yeah. so the, the people that we seek yeah. to influence and when when uh, I, I like the the tools maturity reports that they used to do the learner voice you know um yeah. what what's the uh what's the number one reason that, that you want to engage in learning and development or whatever it was and the people saying to be better and faster at my job that was it it was number one every single yeah. time uh, you know, nowhere to be seen was because I like learning, or you know, or any of the things that we convince ourselves in learning and development that it's good for. But it was the yeah. primary reasons that we were in work. And of course, some, I think somewhere, somewhere close behind was uh, to improve my prospects. I mean, surprise, surprise, Nick, that people that you we know, wanted to engage in learning and development to help them with what they were in the organisation to do and why on yeah. earth they were working in the first place. Um, yeah. But but of course, you know, we 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 we, we provide these educational materials or we convince ourselves as an unintended consequence, or perhaps it's an intended consequence, uh, that, that learning is good anyway, that bringing to people bringing people together is good anyway. Yeah. And it's almost good enough to, to have invested in uh, um, uh, said activity, but perhaps without a clear idea about what it is that we're seeking to affect.
1: I think that's so important, what, what you've just said there. I think that people, a lot of people are familiar with 70, 2010. But another way of of framing that is that it's people's jobs that are Mm. their learning path. That's what's driving their learning, the challenges that they're facing day to day. And they will Google things or they will Mm. turn to Bob sitting next to them and say, you know, how do I do this? And we are not in the everyday. We're not part of that equation, but we should be. We can be. We can anticipate what a new starter needs. We can give them a handbook with answers to all the questions that they, they have, but we won't know what those questions are if we don't talk to them. If we just create yet another model with uh, module, with here's the strategy, here's the history, here's our locations in the in the globe, then we haven't talk to them and we won't be part of of helping them solve everyday problems but it's such an easy thing to do you know just talk to people what are you struggling with how can we help it works in technical environments i've worked in contact centers where there's a training course on one floor that bears no relation to the work Mm. that they're actually doing on their ground floor because the training process doesn't involve talking to them you know it just takes the standard operating procedures and kind of pushes it out and 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 that's wrong that's education and that's not helping anyone
0: no, no, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, so let's talk about um, human centered design then, Nick. Yeah. Um, what do we need to do to take the steps, perhaps, from education through to um, uh, human centered design? And is that the desired destination for all organisations? And the reason I ask that question is that there will be people listening who say, "Yeah, but my organisation only wants the education part that you're talking about." You know, the you know with, without Perhaps selling the vision that uh, that that uh, that that you've been sharing here. So, is it is it right for every organisation? And if so, how how can people make steps towards it?
1: Yeah, I guess that as a kind of a simple, you know, way to answer this question is that people have got two kinds of challenges. They've got the ones that they already have on the job to. Mm-hmm. Bridge from the conversation we just had Um, and we can help them with those we can give them useful stuff and support and then they've got new challenges those new challenges will come from a couple of different directions like they might have a leader Uh, and we all know this about leaders is that you know stretch assignments are what push people on you know that's what develop people when Mm -hmm. you're given something new to do I was speaking to a a partner actually at Deloitte not long ago and asked them to tell a story about a learning moment, and of course they didn't talk about a course mm. they said I remember this one time when I was working for a partner and they asked me to lead an important client meeting and I'd never done that before but it was a challenge and they supported me through it and, and that was a key point for me it built my confidence so those things are what really drive people's learning so as I say they'll be the ones that already people already do or the ones that we can set them we can set mm. them new challenges that, that bring them on so I guess The answer to your question, what can people do? Well, there's a model which um, I think both myself and and Solved and Charlie and Morton and the guys there have shared called 5DI, Mm -hmm. which steps through what you can do. And it's um, define, discover, design, develop, deploy, iterate. So a very practical level, that's out there, free to use. Mm -hmm. It's about defining what the business problem is, talking to your audience and understanding what they care about, what tasks they're having to do designing a solution which has resource and experience components. The resource will help them with the challenges they have. The experiences will kind of push their capability on. But you asked, is this right for every organization? There's something that really worries me, I guess, which is if you look at the trend, it's towards competitive advantage, and Mm -hmm. that's achieved by reducing the need for capability. Mm -hmm. So... You, 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 if you take Uber, for example, Uber only exists because SatNav means you don't have to memorize every route in London. Mm. So now you don't need highly paid, highly capable people. You just need people who can drive a car yeah. um, and they install the app. So there's an imperative for organizations to adopt performance support quite aggressively so that it costs them less to kind of resource things. But I think the flip side is that people generally like to develop. They like to be stretched and challenged. They like to be done, but but to do that that in a way where they're kind of supported Mm. and they will lose people, I think, if they're not thinking about challenging them and developing them and giving people a sense of mastery and kind of progress. Mm. So I do think it's about striking the right balance and in different contexts, that balance will will be different. Sometimes, Mm. you know, people just need to follow the checklist. But if you were in a job, where all you were doing was just following the performance support, following the guidance, following the checklist, w- wouldn't you want to be challenged at some yeah. point? So I, I think there is there is a reason why organisations should actually be, be building learning experiences and actually thinking mm. about developing capability rather than just kind of performance support guidance.
0: Yeah, and just to pull out something that, uh, that, that, that you mentioned at the beginning there uh, and throughout the conversation, it's that for the learning and development function or leader uh, or member of the team who thinks that their organization only wants the education part from learning and development need to remember that the experiences that actually change people are already happening without L&D and they're already incredibly effective. So L&D can catch up and facilitate um, intentionally more experiences that fast track that, 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 that create those meaningful experiences, but can design them from the recognition that they are a problem or they are not there anyway, or they can consciously build um, uh, and develop people. It's, it's not, it's not absent, even if it's absent in your learning and development function.
1: Yeah, you're right. And I I thank you for nailing that point because I I can give you a couple of examples that illustrate that in different contexts. Mm. You know, the, In a a pilot context, you want L and D wants to give people the experience of engine failure Mm. because that's something that might happen in real life. You don't want that to be the first time that someone's Mm. experiencing that in a leadership context, engine failure is a difficult conversation. I've had those probably you've had those. Mm. It's where you might join a team for the first time um, and a, a, a conversation suddenly slides sideways, you know, because that, for that team member, you're an unknown quantity and you know, that can be the point at which somebody decides to, to leave. Yeah. And so that's the other kind of challenge that you can present. And BP used to do safety simulations at great cost for exactly the same reason. It's because, yeah, the, the challenge will drive your learning if it happens in, in real life. But we really don't want, you know, failure to happen in real life. So l play a critical role in identifying those sorts of challenges and actually saying, you know, have a run at it you know a, a fail um, and, but it won't matter because it's safe to fail in this context um, and there are lots of ways of doing that it, generally though as a rule of thumb if i'm looking through a program design and i cannot see anything that's challenging then it's just education yeah um, you might score a four because your facilitator is entertaining mm. but if there's no challenge probably no learning is is going on
0: yeah 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 i completely agree you mentioned trends earlier uh uh, Nick, and so many trends and practices that emerge in learning and development soon become absorbed into existing practice without the change of practice actually following. An example is learning experience designer or yeah. learning uh, experience manager. I'm sure you've seen it, Nick. Uh, these uh, titles replace instructional designer or L&D manager. The roles and outputs don't change, but the titles do. I think this is particularly damaging and as a function that is all about change. Um, <laughs> we seem to have one hell of a, uh, uh, an attachment to resisting it. Do you see this and fear that the elements of your maturity model uh, around um, uh, performance orientation and human-centred design specifically will be co-opted and adopted without change actually happening?
1: Yeah, and of course they will. But I think y- you and I have... Uh, old enough <laughs> the <sort> of process. <laughs> I mean that that's how a convention protects itself yeah. what happens is any convention or you know organisations do the same thing some new language you know let's say every organisation has to be innovative so all of a sudden the, the organisation has banners up and stuff on the wall that says we're an organisation because it protects itself from the accusation that, that it's not changing mm. um, it's like camouflage but underneath it it's kind of exactly the same yeah. but we are mature enough to know that process goes on yeah. and, and actually, yeah, that's going to happen. But also you can drive real change by showing organizations that that does mean something different, you know, mm. so that people can say, "Oh, look at that thing, you know, over there. Uh, I'll give you an example back, back in the BP days, actually even preceding that BBC days, we started creating digital learning, which was unlike anything that people had seen before, which is kind of tile based, um, uh kind of systems where more like pinterest actually Mm. pinterest was was part of what we were trying to to mimic with what we were doing then and and now there's actually quite a big market for that kind of stuff now that could simply have disappeared under the you know uh, under the kind of the the digital learning banner and we could still have had e-learning but now we have digital learning which looks and feels quite different and systems which actually do that so i think there's an opportunity to make progress by showing people that there is something different. It's not just jargon that Mm. that an experience can look differently. Um, And and this is what I'm spending a lot of my time doing now with clients, which is saying, well, you could design something like this or like this, or like that. Mm. Um, And actually that's quite a refreshing conversation to have. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you're right, but you just, you have to accept that and contend with it and make progress nonetheless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I called it out because, uh, um, First of all, I think it's prevalent, uh, and uh, and secondly, as someone who stands for uh, for learning and development that actually makes a difference, I do sometimes uh, think people listen to this and we we'll, think, thinking, does he actually like learning and development? But the thing is that that. Um, uh, I, I care that we stand for actual change and not just moving stuff around and collecting uh, and counting um, clicks and bums on seats and then thinking that we're great because we we got a load of tens and people like the lunch. I just expect a, a great deal more from us. And I think that um, that one way that we can look back and uh, uh, and we can assess whether we are just changing the titles is whether is how we measure our success. If we are count, counting counting training hours, um, satisfaction and NPS we're probably just changing the titles but if we're um, if we are clear about the changes that we are expected to facilitate or to, to help enact and that we can look back and say yes we've done that then there's a good chance that we're on the on the right path
1: I don't know whether, uh, whether that resonates at all. Yeah, it does. It resonates, and use that magic word, and it resonates because you know I care about learning as well. Mm. I wonder why you care about learning. I mean, literally, why? Why do you care so much about learning, David? Um, uh, first of all, I think it's a, a um,
0: my apprenticeship in learning and development uh, in a classroom. I think really was not what what I found the job to be when I was accountable for for leading functions, and the more senior I got. Um, i felt that um that that apprenticeship failed me it was it wasn't about that and i think it's because um w- you have different audiences or stakeholders at that level when you are a trainer you just need to you're, you're just focusing on the people in the room uh, whether you are designing or simply delivering those people are your customers but when you are at, and, and of course yeah, so it's all of it's It's about the the means in which you are determined a success, which is those happy sheets, NPS and the like. But when you are are, when you step out of there and you are uh, having conversations with senior leaders about the actual change that needs to to happen, it's I thought the way to the way I was chasing satisfaction and NPS was in direct contrast to what the job actually was, and when when I was at that level, I felt cheated by yeah. um, the profession. I felt cheated by uh, the application of learning tech. Um, I felt um, I, I, I felt that we that we all should uh, we uh, expect more. That was when I you know I, I stumbled across your blog and plenty of uh, other people who were saying similar things because I thought I was on my own with it. Uh, and especially when there there are accrediting bodies and uh, and a whole market that is aimed at creating more engaging content creating more engaging training courses and more engaging platforms to to service the customer in the first way i described but totally neglecting that that important element of, of actually helping the organisation and people beyond uh, satisfaction. So I think that I took that personally, uh, and I think that um, f- uh, was uh, have been seeking ways to to remedy that um, more broadly
1: across the organisation uh, ever since then. It's interesting because there's there's two really fascinating things in that. You know, both you and I care deeply about the impact that we're making it's Mm. like we're rain dancers who care that it's not raining yeah we're we're people who deeply care about the rain when so bloody hell i'm not confident that what i've done has had anything to do with this but it's worth bearing in mind that not everybody has the same motivations in learning Mm. some people like to be the center of attention some people like to to feel like they know what they're doing you know, mm. and so rain dancing and, and education have, have a whole kind of manual and they have, and, and some people just like to be part of the community, you know, go you yeah. to conference. And so there are very different motivations and very different reactions to what we do. And sometimes we're just kind of seen as troublemakers. And I mm. understand that. But the other really interesting thing is that your strengths are your weaknesses. So what drives you and I on in learning is this, this passion for making a difference. And and, and we're passionate about learning, but sometimes that's a disconnect with our clients because mm. they don't care. They don't care about learning. And, and the fact that we've got all this jargon and philosophy and theory, we still need to find a way to really connect and listen and not just become, you know, these, these kind of, uh, self-involved old expert <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and really think well how do i connect with this person seeing across from me who, who thinks they know what learning's all about mm-hmm. doesn't really care about all this jargon and, and whatever and this debate we're having and, and that i think is it's a big part of how we can make progress
0: uh, yeah yeah I, yeah i completely agree i i, I see the uh, the role of uh, uh of a leader if um uh, in any field it's that that people follow it i always i always try to think don't bash a certain fraternity within uh, learning and development so certainly don't bash the uh, the profession uh, that uh, that we want to see whether we can uh, we can gently guide people towards um uh, and all, all it is for me is efficacy you know it's a function that that um that that spends money and um uh, yeah. to, and seeks the the attention of of people doing serious work uh, that if we've uh, if we're going to gain and use any of that then uh, then then do it to make well, a I called
1: difference. it a pizza shop. I've called it a pizza shop in very <laughs> with very senior stakeholders, <laughs> very big organizations. I've said, I think we might be running a pizza shop. And let me explain what I mean by that. It's like, you know, you've got this bunch of people, they're creating this stuff, they're shipping it out to different parts of the organization. They're tracking consumption. They mm-hmm. can tell you how much of it's been consumed and how much of it is being left uneaten. Uh, they're, they're telling you that people like it. You know, they're telling that you're year on year, we're improving the efficiency of, that we're driving down the cost of creating pizza and, and shipping it out. But what we can't tell you is if it's doing anyone any good. <laughs> and, and quite possibly it isn't. Um, so, you know, you are you happy to pay for this activity? Right. Uh, well, you might be. You might say, yeah, people kind of like it, you know, let's carry on. But most organisations will want to know that it's, it's doing some good. And I think that good falls into these two buckets. I think mm. either we're helping people to perform and we should be able to measure that or we're changing their experience in the organisation. I think that is really important, like belonging. Yeah. Yes. Do, do you feel like you belong? Because that has a business impact. People will leave if mm. they don't feel like they're respected or included or they belong or they're being led in the right way. So we can impact both those kinds of things and, and they have measurable business outcomes so mm. i think that's that's what that's my reign
0: <laughs> yeah nice nice um, well before we wrap up uh nick i would i'd like to get your clearly learning and development is changing um whether learning and development are making that change or not and you've been posting recently about hybrid learning uh, yeah. and how it's different from blended learning of course the world's been turned upside down with uh with covid and restrictions yeah. uh, which has kind of led us to this could you could you explain how uh, what what hybrid learning is and how it's different from blended learning Yeah, do you see what I did there? So I took
1: that concern that you have earlier Mm -hmm. about the industry hijacking, you know, uh, new terms (laughs) Mm -hmm. to carry on doing the old. And I'm trying to hijack a new term, hybrid learning, to try and encourage people to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so... what I don't want is that hybrid learning just becomes another word for blended learning because yeah. blended learning is basically an educational thing. And you and I both know, you know, what it means for the benefit of some people listening. It's basically you chunk up a course so you can save a bit of money. You put some of the content in the digital bit and call it pre-work. And no, nobody does the pre-work, <laughs> but you, you, shrink, you shrink the event and, and it saves a bit of, of money and the business is happy and you can do your strategy presentation and, you know, all is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the end user just feels like you've just spent less money, <laughs> The event's mm-hmm. be shortened to a day, so that blended learning never really worked terribly well. You know, having been involved in lots of kind of blended learning, I mean, it would save a bit of money, but you know, nobody was tracking the performance, so who cares? Um, so I think what we're trying to do with hybrid learning is actually trying to describe what certainly what we had to do at Deloitte as a consequence of COVID. We were looking at the induction program, and what we did was we said, "Look, we're going to split." We're going to do the audience analysis and we're going to split it in two directions we're going to have all of the useful stuff digital stuff all of the content but we're going to get that out of the classroom of the experience you will not be sitting there there will be no powerpoints we're going to take anything that might actually be useful for people and put it somewhere where it's easy for them to access one side and on the other side we're going to create an experience which really addresses some of the concerns that people have like making friends fitting in understanding what's expected uh how to lead a meeting Mm -hmm. uh what to do when you're off off the bench none of this kind of high level strategy stuff but just about an experience giving people a chance to practice things try things build networks build their confidence um and build capabilities mm. and so so we did that even though it was all digital we had a digital experience with no content and all of the digital resources where somebody uh, could access them uh, and that's what hybrid meant for us and, and we won we, we worked together with solved on that with charlie and morton and the, and the gang and we won the uh, gold award at the lpi which we're very proud of uh, mm. for the work that we and deloitte uh, and solved did together on that and um yeah, so so that's what it means to me. So so can I just just for clarity,
0: um, <clears throat> the blended learning bit I get like um, it's it's a way of uh, delivering content that um, is a precursor to the to the learning event in inverted commas, uh, and it try and attempts to increase the the effectiveness of that afterwards by kind of leaving a trail, but it is. It's content it, um, training content, so it is. So it's, it's about it's about education and making the, the 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 heaviest investment last longer. But hybrid learning is about using the most appropriate means in order to enact the changes that are required as people transition or are expected to adapt. And the measure of success, rather than engagement or attendance is whether that change has happened.
1: Am I right, or? You are right, but that's super complex. And I think you told me that what I said was super complex. And I think <laughs> it was quite complex. So, so it suddenly became painful. you are got to go again. Yeah. But maybe we need to really super simplify it. So I think blended was just taking the content and splitting it into digital and face-to-face yeah, and hybrid is taking the outcome and splitting it into performance support or resources and experiences or challenges. And I I think that's the difference. They both split things, but Blended was just taking the content and splitting it into digital face-to-face. Hybrid is taking the outcome and splitting it into performance support and experiences. Brilliant. We'll We'll edit my bit out. (laughs) No, I think I think think you were coaching me (laughs) then.
0: Right. Uh, Well, Nick, as we uh, as we uh, wrap this up, if the if the listener themselves recognises that their efforts uh, on your uh, learning maturity model, uh, and whether their efforts, people, and budgets are predominantly focused on education, and they wish to progress through the levels, what do you recommend they do first?
1: Um, I guess that if if they're interested, if there's a kind of a will to kind of progress. then they can take a look at some of the examples. I mean, i have shared lots of kind of examples and toolkits um, on the Shackleton Consulting sites. There's lots of things that people are free to use. I think that the way I've framed it is it's a little bit like a a journey and different people can go on that journey in different ways. Sometimes a destination postcard is all you need. I I, I go on TikTok quite a lot. One of the things I like on TikTok is there's little places in London um, that I didn't know existed. And and that's all I need. I just need to know that they're there and I can find my way there. So sometimes all you need to see is a picture of what somebody else has done and that's been very successful for a number of organisations. They've, they've seen something we've shared or some other organisations done and they thought, yeah, we're going to set off in that direction. And then there are other people who will help, need a little bit of help around preparing for the journey. So if you're actually going to go up to Snowdon, you might want to talk to somebody, you know, get some support around the kit and the process and so on. So, um you know, using the 5DI and we're running 5DI workshops, it's quite short. And then people kind of set off with, with the right equipment. And then if you're climbing Everest, you, you, if you've got a massive task ahead, you want to completely change your strategy or a big leadership program redesign. That's also the kind of the work uh, kind of work I've done a lot of. You probably want a bit of handholding along the way. So as, as you and I know, because I think we've both done that, having somebody there, certainly at kind of critical points to say, oh, this is how you run a focus group. Because you know, if you do it for the first time, yeah. it, it can feel a little uneasy. Or this is how you des- run a design workshop. Or this is how you engage differently with stakeholders at the outset. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of, of uh, uh, Sherpa kind of some bits of support can be, be handy as well. So um, I, I make no judgments. Different organizations will go about change in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just have to think about the, the level of support they want uh, for the journey that they're going to go on.
0: Brilliant. And you alluded to it uh, a little in there, Nick, but if the listener listener wishes to connect with you or follow your work, how best can they do so? I I hate sales
1: pitches. I don't know (laughs) if that comes across. So I'm trying trying to do one (laughs) without doing more, but yes, I I set up, um, you know, having uh, left Lloyd. Because uh, I felt that probably most of the value I was adding was actually developing, you know, capability. And it was uh, just loved seeing what people could do if you give them a little bit of support in, in a different direction. Just just amazing. So that's what I enjoy doing. I'm hoping to make a living of it. So, yes, I'm, I have shackleton-consulting.com. Uh, and that's 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 what I do now. So far, So good.
0: Great. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes, Nick, as well as uh, to your uh, social media profiles. Uh, but it's all left for me to say, Nick, is uh, thank you very much for, for being a guest again on the Learning and Development Podcast. Thanks, David. It was good to see you again. Nick's learning maturity model helps synthesize, for me, the progress we all need to make from education and more towards measurable impact. And I'm sure you found that conversation both enlightening and empowering. I know I did. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at DavidInLearning and connect on LinkedIn for which you'll find the links in the show notes too. Goodbye for now.